You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. Healthcare costs are on the rise, and taking care of our health is one of the most important moves we can make for our lives and for our finances. Make a plan for managing your healthcare costs with the help of a complimentary wealth checkup at planefe.com slash hermoney. Hey, it's Motley Fool Money co-host Dylan Lewis here. If you're listening to us, it's because you love following the stock market and learning about business stories. If you're looking to keep learning and unlocking your potential, then you should check out the Think Fast, Talk Smart podcast produced by our friends over at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning Best Business Podcast that's received nearly 43 million downloads and is the number one career podcast in 95-plus countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills, from making small talk that leaves a big impression, to keeping your nerves in check while speaking, to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, Strong communication skills are important in business and life in general. That's why you'll hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, as well as speechwriter, best-selling author, and friend of the fool Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. All that and so much more available on the Think Fast, Talk Smart podcast. So what are you waiting for? Listen every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. Whatever it is, if you can switch that to understand and try and honor the buckets of financial health and emotional wealth, you can arrive at this state of money's end. Hey, everybody, it's Jean Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Worrying about money is unfortunately a universal problem. And with today's economic uncertainty, stubbornly high inflation, although it's coming down a bit, we like to see that, and recession fears, it seems like our worries are only growing each year. A new study from Bankrate found that 52% of Americans say money has a negative impact on their mental health, up significantly from 42% a year ago. And four out of five people say this has manifested into sleepless nights and depression. And as much as we can try, it can be really tough to sidestep financial stress in the areas of our lives. Research from Fidelity Investments points to the fact that individuals experience, on average, four stressful life events every single year. And these include everything from marriage to divorce to buying a new home to switching jobs to having a baby because, yeah, even some of our most joyful moments can be both stressful and financially fraught. And as much as we might wish that we had control over every single aspect of our lives, we just don't, particularly our financial lives. But we can take steps 
to help manage how we feel about our finances and increase our financial wellness. And while financial wellness tends to mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people, I think it comes down to preventing financial stress when you can and having the ability to deal with that stress when you can't. We should all try to consider our emotional well-being and our financial health as twin concepts in all of our day-to-day life decisions. And perhaps nobody knows that better than my guest, Manisha Takor. Now, you know Manisha. She's been here before. She is a certified financial planner, a chartered financial analyst, a nationally recognized thought leader on all things women's economic empowerment and financial well-being. She's also got quite a story to share. She quite literally nearly worked herself to the brink of death. And she's learned and relearned how to prioritize herself while also finding financial success and figuring out how to live a fulfilling life. For the first time, she is sharing her personal story in a new book. It's called Money Zen, The Secret to Finding Your Enough. Manisha, thanks for being here. It's so good to see you. Oh, Tina, it's always wonderful to get to chat with you. I know you have spent decades helping individuals of all ages balance their health and their emotional wealth and their finances. And I think what you've done here, taking a look at your own life and figuring out how to walk a path that could bring you the fulfillment that you wanted most is really beautiful. And so can we just start with your own story? Can we start with what happened and what's changed? Sure. So As I approached age 50, I had the second of my near-death experiences, and talk about a wake-up call. It made me realize as I was lying in bed with welts all over my body, fevers bouncing between 101 and 103, doctors trying to figure out why my body was attacking, literally attacking itself. My mind started wandering, and I realized I had spent the past 30 years of my adult life trapped on this 24-7 hamster wheel of never enough. I had basically lived my entire adult life as a human doing instead of a human being. And I decided that I wanted to understand why this happened, and more importantly, how to get out of it. So I dived into a two-year research project. Probably the most surprising thing about it was, unlike a lot of nonfiction books where the beginning is a description of the problem and 75% are the how-to tips to get out of this, there aren't three quick tips or five quick tips because understanding the source of the problem is 80% of the solution. And after years of living my life to optimize the very toxic equation of self-worth equals net worth, I've now found a new mental mindset defined by financial health plus emotional wealth that enables people to hit the very definition of financial wellness and financial being that you just cited. There's so much to unpack in in what you just said. 
So let me just touch on a few things that I want to pull out. A human doing versus a human being. What do you mean? So I basically was operating under the misguided belief that if I did this, then I would have that, and then I would be happy. Now, the do and the have isn't necessarily related to possessions or things. So if I work hard enough, I will move up in my career. I work hard enough, I will get accolades. I work hard enough, I will feel whole inside and successful. And what I realized is I was doing it in the completely wrong order. The right way, I would argue, is to start with being who you want to be from the inside out, which will guide you to do the things that nourish your soul. And then that will result in you having whatever it is that the universe is deciding you should have. And it's a much more pleasant way of living. But there is a component to it that is financial, that is possession-driven. You said net worth equals self-worth, right? I mean, that's all about the balance in your bank account, the balance in your 401k, the equity in your home, the size of your home. I mean, I could just list example after example. And I worked at Money Magazine for many, many years, Smart Money Magazine before that. And we knew that we could publish story after story showing averages on how much people in their 30s have and how much people in their 40s have because people just like to measure up because it gives them an indicator of how they are able to value themselves. It's very hard to escape. It is incredibly hard to escape. And that's why I actually call this the cult of never enough, because the finish line is constantly moving. And there are a variety of reasons I identified in the book four big buckets, personal small T traumas, societal issues, cultural issues, evolutionary biological issues. But what it all boils down to is we're humans. And philosophers for years have been trying to help us let go of greed and envy and jealousy and ego. And yet we today live in a world where we are bombarded by what I'll call false financial images. Social media, of course, is the most common one where we've all become curators of our own magazines of our life, only posting the best of. But more importantly, what I'm seeing is we are exposed to media images on TV and movies of people who have certain kind of jobs, and the way they are living bears no resemblance to the average income paid for that type of job. This runs the gamut across professions. And in my research, what I discovered is in most of the images we see in popular media today— you would have to earn 30 to 50% more than the incomes being portrayed by the characters and their professions. And so this creates this warped 
um, sense. So we're naturally predisposed to compare. And on top of that, now we're comparing ourselves into financial funny mirrors. Yeah. In fact, if you're curious, if you are a member of the cult of Never Enough, you've got a quiz on your website that people can take and figure out if they have fallen prey to this. And let me just acknowledge that I was right in there. I mean, I think it's hard to be on Instagram and not not want things. I guess the challenge is how do you take a step back. I mean, you had a a life-threatening illness that forced you to take a step back, and we're all happy that you're better and on the mend, but I wouldn't wish that on anybody, right? How do you get yourself to a place where you are ready enough to look at what is stressing you out, what's causing this increased anxiety, and look at it in an honest enough way that you can bring yourself back a bit? So what I would say, and thank you for referencing the quiz. People can find it at moneyzenquiz.com. The reason I created this is because it's so hard to really know if you've fallen into it and then how to pull yourself out. And so I have identified three different broad characteristics of when you've fallen into it. One is that this is a pervasive feeling that no matter how much money you earn, accomplishments you achieve, praise you receive, it's never enough to make you feel whole inside because that finish line keeps moving. Another trait, if you notice this in yourself, is that you have subconsciously embraced societal messages telling you that the answer to pretty much anything that ails us is more. Do more, be more, have more, buy more. And the final piece is noticing that no matter how often you try and do healthy things like gratitude lists and meditate and read about positive psychology, you still feel like you're striving yourself to death. And so those are some of the most noticeable conceptual characteristics. The more down-to-earth ones are you just feel like you're not living a life you love. Your relationships are suffering because of a toxic mindset you've developed around money, careers, and success. And then the third one is you feel like you're putting your life on hold, working so much to establish financial health, which is essential that you've not invested in emotional wealth. What does it mean, emotional wealth? I think about emotional wealth. If you just Google, for anyone not familiar with this concept, Maslow's hierarchy of the needs. Maslow's hierarchy of needs walks through what we need as human beings to really blossom into full wellness. Self-actualization is the term for the top of the pyramid. The first two layers of the pyramid have to do, honestly, with achieving certain skills around building financial health. You can't have food, shelter, safety, the things you need to be able to open your mind to items that would fall into emotional wealth unless you have that basis of financial health. But what happens is when that base of financial health 
falls into the never enough cycle. You never get to the upper two layers of the triangle where you start investing in your emotional wealth. And investing in it is different for everyone. But probably the clearest example I can give to you is for years when I do talks, I ask people to write on an index card, free association, the answer to this question. If you woke up and got $10 million after tax and simultaneously a diagnosis of 10 years left to live, so you have unlimited money and very limited time, first of all, what would you stop? And then what would you start? And uniformly, people would stop worrying. (laughs) They'd stop their work. And what they'd start is spending more time with their family, more time with friends, giving back to the community, traveling, learning a language, learning an instrument. So the point I want to make is emotional well-being looks different for every one of us. But one way to quickly identify where you may be lacking is to do the 10 and 10 exercise. I love that exercise, but let's come back to the pyramid for a second and just put it into some perspective. So when I wrote Women With Money, I went around and asked hundreds of women the question, what do you want your money to do for you? What do you want from your money, basically? And what I heard time and time again was some variation of safety and security. It wasn't wealth. It wasn't, I want to go to the Bahamas and spend three months and blah, 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 blah. It was, I want a home with a paid off mortgage. I want cash in the bank and not a ton of cash, just enough cash in the bank. And I'm wondering in this day and age where women in particular were living so much longer, we are still behind the curve when it comes to salaries. We are still the ones, as the pandemic showed us, taking breaks to care for kids and older parents. How do we get to the top of the pyramid in a financial way? How do we put on your financial planner hat? How do we convince ourselves that what we're accumulating actually is enough? So the way I think about those base layers, broadly speaking, is that when you have enough money that you can effectively manage your economic life, you feel you have financial security and freedom, and you feel like you have choice both in your present and your future life. That is, broadly speaking, the sweet spot of enough. How you get there are all the things you teach, right? It's budgeting, it's saving, it's debt management, it's tax optimization, insurance, retirement planning. But the end goal, the enough, is what you say you're hearing from women. It's security. It's options. My mom always says money gives women voices and choices. This book is for individuals who have gotten so stuck in the work around achieving that independence, financial security, and so forth, that they've lost connection with the overall goal of having security, choice, joy 
in the present and the future. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Manish, I want to dig into how you found your money then to how you did it, to the steps that you took and the steps that we can take and whether it's a practice, whether it's kind of like yoga, it's something that we need to embrace, but also to practice. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Check out our new podcast, How She Does It with CNBC's Karen Feinerman for intimate cocktail party style conversations with today's most talented female leaders. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. Healthcare costs are on the rise, but we know that taking care of our health is one of the most important moves we can make for our lives and our finances. The good news is that with the right savings and investing strategies, you can get out ahead of unexpected healthcare costs and develop a plan that can work for you and your family no matter what life throws at you. Schedule your complimentary wealth checkup to meet with an advisor at planefe.com slash hermoney. I'm talking with Manisha Takor, author of the new book, Money Zen. So how did you find it? I mean, you said it was a two-year endeavor to get from there to here. What were the most important steps that you took? I would say there are three that I'd highlight. The first is the extensive research that I did with interdisciplinary experts to identify four pieces of the puzzle that can cause us to get stuck in a never enough mindset. And again, the book goes into it in details. I'll just summarize the names. It can be personal small t traumas, which in my case is very much what drove me. It can be societal influences, cultural influences, and or evolutionary biological influences. And what I found is that we don't really have a comprehensive roadmap to think through these things. And the combination of these factors are what creates money worries for us. And money worries are distinct from money problems. Money problems are things that can be solved with tactics. My credit score is stinky. How do I get it up? How do I know how much house I can afford? Worries are those guttural, awful things that can push us to develop toxic behaviors around work and money. So the first piece is I dove into that. And with that deeper understanding, I was bullied very extensively between fourth and sixth grade. And that imprinted on my brain this desire to have enough money that I would never be put in a place where I felt like that again. And so working through that with the other factors helped. Second factor is using the phrase for what? When I'm doing any activity that is overwhelming me, I ask either for what or why, and I ask it five times. It's a little bit like Byron Katie's phrase, is is that true? Is that true? But there's something about asking for what or why that can help you readjust the way you spend your time. I mean, one of the things that I observed was that I was doing a ton of activities that were draining me 
because I was afraid to say, I don't have any more bandwidth. I wanted to be superwoman. And so I was saying yes to too many professional engagements and then sucking at them. And so for what and why helped me with that. And then the last one came, it was an insight from a, a wonderful woman I interviewed who worked in a hypertension center for a couple of decades and identified the difference between healthy people and unhealthy people when it came to hypertension was that healthy people had a really strong focus on connection. And when they felt out of balance, they would ask some version of to whom or what do I need to connect to take a baby step forward towards happiness? And those three pieces, I would say at a a high level, that was the secret sauce, the magic formula for me in terms of the underlying steps. I think that's so important. And especially we do interviews on so many of the different aspects of our lives that money touches, career and relationships and happiness and health and connection and loneliness. And it's always at the heart of things. It's always that important hub. Once you found your money, Zen, is it permanent? Or is it something that you have to keep coming back to again and again? Is it like yoga? Is it like a practice? Yeah, it is. I mean, I really wish it was a firm place that you put an anchor and it never moves. But the issue is, just like you highlighted earlier, our financial situations change depending upon what's going on in the broader economy and what's going on with our source of income. So what you need to do to maintain your financial health will shift. And then what brings you emotional wealth may shift over time. So there's a need to have this process And for some people, it can be a daily practice. For those who love Julia Cameron's morning pages, as I do, every morning I write three eight and a half by 11 pages stream of conscious, and then I tear them up. They're not a journal, but they release in my mind ideas that may help me make minor self-corrections. For other people, it could be a quarterly or an annual exercise I run through a lot of different questions in the book that you can ask yourself to do this. But what I want to emphasize is that what you're trying to do in terms of maintaining and embracing a mindset of money zen is to shift from trying to optimize an equation for success that is unhealthy for you. And again, mine was self-worth equals net worth. But, you know, I've talked to yoga instructors who tell me it's the number of people in their classes. I've talked to academics who tell me it's the number of papers they publish. Whatever it is, if you can switch that to understand and try and honor the buckets of financial health and emotional wealth, you can arrive at this state of money zen. And if you'd like to talk about it, there's an interesting study that just came out of Penn that actually gives some hard scientific data around why this is true. I mean, Penn is right about 15 blocks away. So let's dig in. I always love the research. Yeah. So for years, we've heard 
$75,000 is the sweet spot of how much we need to earn in order to be happy. And earning more than that doesn't increase our happiness. And that study's old, so that number needs to be inflation adjusted. But whatever that number is, what researchers found is that in an absence of emotional well-being, increases beyond what you need to meet those essential layers of Maslow's hierarchy of the needs, our safety, our security, and so forth, earning increased amounts above and beyond that do not increase your life satisfaction if you don't have that layer of emotional wealth. And that's really the the connection. And so, so many of us are struggling to improve our financial health that my argument that you want to invest in your emotional wealth at the same time may seem like lollipops and unicorns. But time and again, we see that Having more well-being actually enables us to do a better job of being focused and calm and comfortable enough to focus on our financial health. And now we finally have some really interesting research that explains why one in the absence of the other doesn't bring you rainbows. Where does work fit in here? Where does this idea of we do work for our money, we more often than we ever have before, I think, are reevaluating our relationship with our work. We just had Simone Stoltzoff, author of The Good Enough Job, on the podcast and had a fascinating conversation with him about this. But where do you think the right place is for work? And I, I know you well enough to know that at least at some periods in your life, you've really loved what you've done, as I do. How do you put that in perspective? Well, first, I just want to say, if listeners have not read Simone's book, The Good Enough Job, it is fantastic. I had the pleasure of hearing him speak at Powell's Bookstore Live in Portland, Oregon. And one of the things he emphasizes is this notion, you know, how jobs have gone to careers that have gone to callings. And he cites the writings of Derek Thompson from The Atlantic about how we now worship at, at the altar of workism. And the delineation, I think, is there's two kind of buckets, work engagement, which is a healthy relationship to work. You love what you do. It energizes you, but you are able to disconnect from it. Whereas workaholism and being sucked into this feeling of never enough is when you are unable to turn it off. You may not be working all the time. You may not be working more than 20 hours a week, but it's in your head. And that's when it gets dangerous. And again, that's where this intersection of financial health and emotional wealth bubbles up again, because healthy work engagement enables you to grow both pieces. The more toxic workaholism version or perfectionism version is what keeps you from having the synergistic effect of those two elements. This is such a fascinating conversation. It's a fascinating book. I hope that our listeners will pick it up. I know you said, I don't have three tips, so I'm not going to ask you for three tips. But if there was the single most important takeaway that you wanted my listeners to grab, what would that be? You are enough. 
you are enough. And I mean that in the sense that I'm not denying the fact, I mean, if you don't have money, that's a problem. It makes for a miserable life. But so many of us try and fill the hole inside ourselves with all these other things. And what I learned after talking to so many people was A, how widespread this problem is across age, income, and profession, and how the ultimate feeling of money zen is rooted in knowing you are enough. Manisha Takor, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm going to send everybody to your website. It is moneyzen.com. Thank you so much for being here and come back anytime. Jean, thank you so much for having me on. You always ask the most fascinating questions. Well, thank you. Before we dive into our mailbag, a quick word from our sponsors. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. Hey, everybody, it's Jean. If you want to continue unlocking your potential, then you should also check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by our friends at Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning best business podcast that received nearly 50 million downloads. It's the number one career podcast in 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills from making small talk that leaves a big impression to keeping your nerves in check while speaking to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, strong communication skills are critical to business. All that and so much more is available on Think Fast, Talk Smart. Listen every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. Dive into the heart of crime with Foul Play Crime Series. Immerse yourself in the most perplexing cases where each twist and turn is more baffling than the last. With riveting storytelling and detailed analysis, Foul Play brings the unsolved and unexplained to life, captivating your imagination. Listen to Foul Play Crime Series now, where every story is a puzzle waiting to be solved. And we are back for our mailbag. My daughter, Julia, is with me. Hey, Jules. Hello. How are you doing? I am doing just fine. It's interesting. I've I've known Manisha for a long time. I didn't know she was struggling like this. I mean, she's always been one of my on-call financial advisors because she's had great, very in-perspective advice for people. But the fact that somebody like her is taking a step back and saying, what's enough in life? When can we stop striving? When can we take a breath and relax? It makes, I don't know, makes me think. I think your generation is better at work-life balance than my generation. Let's answer some questions. All righty. First, we have a question from Jenna. She writes, 
Hello, I'm a longtime listener and I appreciate all of your finance wisdom from a female perspective. We are planning on purchasing a more expensive house in the next one to two years. We will likely need to spend $400,000 on a new house and we'll have cash available for a 20% down payment without having to sell our current home. We also have our current house paid off. Our current house is worth $225,000. Our credit score is also very good. It's over 800. We both have jobs that pay around $65,000 a year. Plus, I have a side business that makes around $40,000 a year. So, my question is, once we purchase a new house and sell our old house, what do you recommend we do with that lump sum of money we will get from selling the old house? Do we invest the money or do we put the money into the new mortgage? I do love the idea of being debt-free, but I'm also aware that I'm relatively younger and will have time to pay off my house. Thanks so much for all of your help. You are truly a treasure. Well, that's very nice. Thank you, Jenna, for the compliment. Very sweet. And for the question, I know mortgage rates are higher than they have been, and sometimes it's keeping a lot of people out of the market for homes. I would not pay off the mortgage, though. Put the 20% down. If you want to get yourself onto a 15-year mortgage timetable rather than a 30-year mortgage timetable, it'll lower your interest rate a little bit. It'll boost your payments by a little bit, but clearly you have the money to deal with that. And then you'll know that you'll be clear within 15 years rather than 30. That'll make you feel a little bit better. And then, yeah, I would just go ahead and invest the money because even at a 7% mortgage, if you look at how stocks have done or a balanced portfolio has done over time, it's been a few percentage points ahead of that 7%. So by the numbers, that's the right thing to do. And I say that being somebody who really doesn't like debt either, but that's what I would do in your situation. And congrats on the new house. It's very, very exciting. Yeah, such a big deal. Great advice, mom. All right, our next question today comes to us from an anonymous listener. She writes, Hi, Jean and her money. I am a longtime listener and first-time caller. I am writing for your guidance on protecting an inheritance from adverse tax implications and allowing it to grow until I decide to access it. My father passed away in 2019 at the age of 78. He left me and my siblings shares of an inherited IRA, and we each received a payout of $600,000 this week from the sale of his real estate holdings. I took receipt of my $600,000 into a Vanguard Trust brokerage account. I am 46, female, married without children, and my husband and I both work. We each make six figures, and we own our home outright. We have no debt and pay our credit cards in full every month. I have $850,000 in my own 401k, and I max it out every year. So I do not anticipate drawing from the trust brokerage account on a regular basis, but rather for special projects. One thing I would like to do in the next two years is a gut renovation of our pre-war NYC apartment which would cost about $200,000 all in to bring the kitchen and bathrooms up to a truly modern state. 
that leaves about $400,000 that I would like to protect and continue to grow until I decide to access it for other projects or plans. I'm very grateful to be inheriting all of these assets and find myself in a strong financial position. So I am seeking advice from you on what to do next. What kind of expert should I be looking to consult? What are the right qualifications for that expert to have? And where do I look for this kind of expert? Tax attorney, estate attorney, certified financial planner, I am most concerned about the tax implications and making sure that the way I proceed doesn't fritter away the inheritance with tax liability. Well, first of all, I am really sorry about your loss, about your father. A lot of people are going to find themselves in a similar situation to you and your siblings over the next decade or so. We are in the midst of this unprecedented transfer of wealth from one generation to another. And a lot of that money is going to flow into the hands of women. Basically, the big question here is regarding that IRA. So the way it works when you inherit an IRA is that you transfer the assets into what's called an inherited IRA. It's held in your name. And you have to, under rules today, take the money out, all of it, within 10 years, or you're going to face a steep penalty. And the rate at which you have to take that money out is based essentially on your life expectancy. There are some exceptions to this 10-year timetable if you were a minor child or a spouse or you had a disability or a chronic illness, then the rules would be different. But for you, you are on a 10-year clock and you're right to be concerned about taxes because when you pull that money out of this inherited IRA, you will pay income taxes on that money. And so you want to try to time the withdrawals, if possible, to line up with years where maybe your income is going to be a little bit less, which might put you into a slightly lower tax bracket. What you do with it after you pull it out That's really your call. You might want to try to stash some of it in a Roth IRA if you don't need the money, if you're eligible for a Roth IRA, which I can't really tell based on your letter if you are or not. But this is exactly the right time to look for some advice. A certified financial planner should be able to do it. They have, in general, enough tax knowledge to be able to help you figure out how to and when to time your withdrawals. You can look for a certified financial planner in your area by accessing the database at the National Association of Financial Advisors or the National Association of Personal Financial Advisors, which is NAPFA. You can also find a CFP at letsmakeaplan.org. That is the website of the Financial Planning Association. And I would 
make sure that when you find a CFP, you find one who's just willing to coordinate with and talk with whoever is doing your taxes. That's how we do it in my life. And it makes a difference that they can just have a phone call or exchange an email. Everybody's on the same page and we are able to very, very easily move forward. Not an especially complicated situation, but I think it is a really good time in your life to have the right team pulled together to help you move forward in the future. And that renovation on your NYC apartment sounds really fun. Personally, I love nothing more than kitchens and baths. So exciting and share pictures if you feel so inclined. Yeah, we can't wait to see the end result. Absolutely. And if you've got any other money-related questions, we'd love to hear from you. Just email us. We are at mailbag at hermoney.com. And now we're going to take a quick break. Hey there, listeners. It's Nima Gobir. I'm the co-host of MindShift, the podcast where we explore the future of learning and how we raise our kids. I don't teach math. I don't teach reading. I teach people. You'll hear from teachers, parents, researchers, and students as we uncover innovative approaches in and out of the classroom. It holds a lot about how we want students and young people to move through the world, how we want to set them up for success. Find MindShift wherever you get your podcasts. We are back with your Money Tip of the Week. According to new data from Vanguard, about 25% of investors have nearly all of their money in stocks. This news might leave you wondering if you are taking too much risk with your asset allocation, especially as you near retirement. My advice is to run your numbers, especially if it's been a while since you looked at them, and then do a gut check. If you feel your heart drop when bad financial news makes headlines, you're taking on too much risk. If you haven't had one of those days in a while, ask yourself how you would feel if your portfolio dipped to 10, even 15%. If you think you'd regret your risky stance, it's time to rebalance, which, by the way, you should likely be doing anyway as you age. While a traditional 60-40 portfolio works great for people in their 50s who are still earning an income, dropping to around 50-50 around age 60-ish is a safer way to go. For more tips on asset allocation and rebalancing, check out our investing club for women. It's called Investing Fix. You can find more information at investingfix, that's fix with two X's, dot com. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you too to Manisha Takor for showing us how to feel a little more zen about our money. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. Her Money is produced by Haley Pascalides with help from everyone on the Her Money team. This show is mixed and mastered by CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Check out our new podcast, How She Does It, with CNBC's Karen Feinerman for intimate cocktail party style conversations with today's most talented female leaders. This podcast is also part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. You can find us and other shows like us at airwavemedia.com. Thanks for joining us and we'll talk soon.